Let me welcome everybody and say greetings to all of you. Welcome, actually, to Gray Matter. That's what we're calling our weekly podcast, which is going to feature in-depth interviews with leading scholars, newsmakers, authors, and intellectuals. And they're with me, for better or worse. I'm Michael Krasny. For 28 years, I was the host of the forum program on KQED, the NPR station in San Francisco, and also heard for many years on Sirius XM. I'm also a professor emeritus of literature at San Francisco State, and delighted to be with Stanford professor Larry Diamond, who is a sociologist and whose name certainly may be one that many of you are aware of because he is probably one of the world's, maybe in some instances I can think of, the world's leading expert and spokesperson about democracy. He's co-founder of the Journal of Democracy, a recent recipient, which I congratulated him on, of the National Endowment for Democracy Award. And Larry is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's also a fellow at the Friedman Spogli Institute and author of many books, including In Search of Democracy, The Spirit of Democracy, Squandered Victory, which is all about Iraq and the attempt to create democracy there or impose it, depending on your point of view. He served as an advisor to think tanks around the world, to the World Bank, to the United States State Department, and to the UN, and I'm delighted to have him for this edition of Gray Matter. Welcome, Larry. Thank you, Michael. Good to be with you again. Good to be with you again. And I thought we'd begin by sort of hearing from you about, well, (laughs) there are weather reports often that you give. They seem like weather reports about democracy. Either we're in a democracy recession uh, or or economic reports, they often sound like as well. And I, I just wanted to get, especially with what's going on now in Ukraine, but also the unfortunate extraordinary number of strongman nations or nations led by strongmen, authoritarian-led nations, totalitarian. What's your sense of the pulse of things now? I mean, where do you give it economically or in terms of an overview, global view, where democracy is and where it's headed? Well, we had an enormous, and then after 1990, exhilarating expansion of democracy that began very slowly in the mid-1970s and then, of of course, accelerated rapidly after the fall of the Berlin Wall and then of the Soviet Union, and then kind of leveled off in the early 2000s with a clear majority of all states of the world being democratic for the first time in world history. You know, and as I've argued, beginning around 2006, 2007, the world began to slip into what I've called a democratic recession. There was first a period of kind of stagnation in the expansion of freedom and democracy, but increasingly it became clear that freedom, political rights and civil liberties and the very existence of democracy in countries around the world was moving backwards. Many countries were losing democracy And as you know, the typical way they were losing them was not by military coup or by the president closing down the parliament, although recently we've had a growing number of military coups. Rather, it was death by a thousand cuts, the gradual suffocation of democracy by elected rulers like, well, early on, Hugo Chavez in in Venezuela, Putin himself in Russia. But then more recently, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey, Viktor Orban in Hungary, many others we could name. Most alarmingly, this is now happening in the world's 
largest democracy, India, under the BJP and its prime minister, Narendra Modi. And it, it was happening in the world's most powerful and important democracy, the United States. And in some ways, as you heard in the January 6th hearings, and I think most dramatically in the testimony of the retired, widely respected conservative federal judge, Michael Ludig, the threat continues with Judge Ludig, a Republican, describing Donald Trump and his allies and supporters as a clear and present danger to our democracy. So, Michael, I would have hoped that the hearings would have, and everything that came out before them would have discredited Trump. I would have hoped that Russia's invasion of Ukraine would have woken up a lot of countries in the world, but we're not even close to exiting this democratic recession. Well, I was also reminded when you gave a talk uh, receiving the award that I mentioned, the National Endowment of Democracy Award, that uh, you mentioned the Philippines, for example, and Duterte's uh, daughter uh, stepping up to power and uh, Duterte and uh, Ferdinand Marcos's son. And then you mentioned Brazil and India. But you've often said we've got China and Russia and we've got things that we're fighting as far as complacency here in the United States that make it seem like democracy is often taking a back seat to strong figures or to what uh, I think uh, was called by Ann Applebaum appropriately, the bad guys. Um, so here we are, and yet you remain optimistic and you remain strongly not only an activist in favor of seeing that, well, in many bad systems, uh, the least of the evils is maybe how Winston Churchill would have said it, the, demo the democratic process or democratic institutions are still the most effective and the best to cherish and to hold dear. Where does your optimism come from? Where does your hope and your activism come from? Well, it doesn't come from the Philippine people electing the corrupt and autocratic son of the late president that you and I will remember very well, uh, Ferdinand Marcos, as their new president, uh, which they did in May, or electing the daughter of the current autocratic Philippine president, Rodrigo Duterte, as their vice president. I mean, the Philippines is, um, is democracy in the Philippines is in very grave trouble now. I'm not sure we could say that the Philippines is a democracy now. It may come from a positive reversal of fortune in Brazil this fall, because the authoritarian president there, Jair Bolsonaro, who almost makes Donald Trump look like a liberal Democrat by comparison, he has open, expressed open admiration for Brazil's military dictatorship. If there's a free and fair election in Brazil, it looks like Bolsonaro will be defeated for re-election. But where my optimism comes from is, first of all, that I do believe that if you look over the long run of history, democracy is the most effective and successful form of government. It's been the most successful in producing and broadly distributing economic growth, it's certainly the most successful in fighting corruption and maintaining a rule of law. And it's unambiguously the most successful in 
securing and protecting human rights, which people around the world value, accountability, rule of law, transparency, voice, participation, inclusion. If you look at what the basic things, forget about the overall political system, the basic values that people care about in the world, democracy is clearly the best form for securing them. If you look at the public opinion polls, what you see is erosion in people's support for their current political systems and their current democracies in Latin America, but still a broad general aspiration, most vividly in Africa, to have democratic accountable forms of government. People still want to choose their leaders in free and fair elections. They still want to have a government that is accountable to the people and not corrupt. They still want freedom of the press and freedom of expression. And so we need a new generation of action, mobilization, civic education, public diplomacy to advance and secure these values. And despite President Biden's, I'd say, admirable general commitment to democracy and the Summit for Democracy he held some months ago, I don't see the concerted public diplomacy campaign that we need to counter Russian and Chinese propaganda. We also have uh, the reality of 70 million people who voted for Donald Trump, and I don't want to get into partisan politics here. I'd like to avoid it, but nevertheless, there are many who view Donald Trump as almost messianic or savior type of figure. And indeed, if nothing else has been brought out by the hearings, the January 6 hearings, which a lot of people are dismissive of and all of that, nevertheless, it's pretty clear that Trump wanted to, I suppose, maybe style himself as an authoritarian figure and steal an election. And there is a lower popularity now for Biden, who is a kind of, I think, well, replacement who could be stable in many people's minds, who would take us away from, uh, you know, presidents who were talking about using bleach uh, to help cure the pandemic and that sort of thing. I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to be right here, but, you know, uh, some would say that the attraction of Trump is an attraction to a strong authoritarian, non-democratic figure. And it is, isn't it? I think it is very disturbing, Michael, that we have a significant portion of the American public that is attracted to a political leader who has been shown now, demonstrated, even beyond what he did for four years publicly to demonstrate it, who is now being demonstrated in the January 6th hearings unambiguously to have conspired against American democracy, to have conspired and mobilized and possibly been a lead strategist, we don't really know the full extent yet, in the effort to overturn the legitimate results of an American presidential election. But we need to separate out the 70 million. We need to separate out the support base for Donald Trump. Yes, 70% of the Republican Party, Republican identifiers, believe that the 2020 election was rigged. And probably, you know, most of those would probably still prefer to have Trump as the nominee. 
My guess is at this moment, even at this moment, after what we've heard in the hearings, that Trump could win a Republican presidential primary process and become the nominee again. But only about 30% of Americans identify as Republicans. So that's only about 20% of the American voting public, maybe a little bit more. You then have a lot of independents who voted for Trump as well, and a few Democrats. But many of them, you know, might prefer another candidate, and some Republicans do. And I think the problem is in our presidential system, you get two choices. You de facto, you can waste your vote on a third choice. But basically, one of two people is going to win the American presidency. It's going to be a Republican or a Democrat. So if people are tired of eight years of Democratic rule and Trump is the alternative, well, he got narrowly elected in 2016 with Russian assistance and a not very well run campaign by Hillary Clinton. In 2020, even more alarmingly, after we saw who he is and how incompetently he managed the COVID crisis, well, okay, he lost by 8 million votes. But in the critical swing states, if you change 40 or 50,000 votes in three swing states, um, he could have been reelected. So, you know, and he might be elected again. So you really have to think about this in the context of the binary choice we get in American politics. Let me say one other thing about our current political situation, Michael, that might put this in perspective. Biden is not extremely unpopular now because he's been very vigorously supportive of democracy. He's extremely unpopular now because we have the highest inflation in 42 years, and it's causing economic pain for a wide swath, the vast majority of the American public. And unfortunately, people all over the world, this is a, a lesson we have learned, even if they are strong defenders of democracy, in many cases, they're going to vote their pocketbook first. And so if the Democrats or the Federal Reserve or some combination of them don't turn around, it's clear the Republicans are going to have a very good November this year. But if the Democrats don't turn around the economy by, I'd say, early 2024, the odds are going to strongly favor whoever is the Republican presidential nominee. I'm afraid we're in agreement about that. But nevertheless, we've also in terms of foreign policy, uh, seen something that was a debacle with Afghanistan and the exit from Afghanistan. And we're seeing and witnessing now uh, what's going on in Ukraine. And there are some who feel, well, maybe with Trump, it would have been a different story with Ukraine because he was <laughs> so close to Putin or so sycophantic to Putin. I'm not sure how you want to see it, but it prompts me actually to ask you, uh, I want to get back to American politics and the role of democracy here in the United States. But I've got a question from Brandon in Topeka, Kansas, who wants to know what the most likely outcome you see for Ukraine. Does Ukraine have a real chance to return to its pre-2014 borders? Asking it a little bit to be a crystal ball gazer there or a soothsayer, but let's talk about this in general. Can Ukraine really return to be the vivid 
democracy that many felt it was under Zelensky, as opposed to his predecessor, who was really just a Putin tool. So, yeah, not his immediate predecessor, Poroshenko, who was, uh, but the previous one before that, Yanukovych, very much was a Putin tool. I'd put it this way, after some initial extraordinary successes in repelling the Russian invasion in the north, uh, particularly the attempt to go all the way to Kiev and the effort to conquer Kharkiv and other northern territory, after some initial extraordinary successes uh, for Ukraine and setbacks for Russia, Russia is now engaged in a grinding, brutal war in the Donbass region and in the south that is gradually swallowing up more Ukrainian territory. And we need to get heavier weapons to the Ukrainian military as soon as possible. And although the Biden administration has done a pretty good job of getting weapons to the Ukrainians after being a little late in doing so, I'm disappointed with the current flow of military equipment. And I think it needs to be put on much more of an emergency footing. Ukraine right now- They're running out of ammunition right now, aren't they? Is running out of everything. And it's a very dire situation. And if we're worried that, oh, if we move too fast and too heavily, Russia might see it as escalating. I think the war has long since escalated. We've already crossed some pretty awful thresholds. And it's extremely important that we get the assistance or most of the assistance or equivalents of the assistance that the Ukrainians are asking for to enable them to wage this battle. That's the first point. The second point I want to make is that if Donald Trump had been reelected in 2020, I'm not sure Ukraine would exist right now as an independent country. If Russia had invaded, and I think it might have anyway, Trump would have said, that's their problem. No assistance would have been flowing to Ukraine. Europe would not have rallied in the way it did, and we'd have a very different and much more frightening and tragic strategic situation now. As for the future, I don't think Russia can simply swallow Ukraine. It will continue to exist, and it's more unified than it was before as a democracy and as a country that does not want to be dominated by Russia. But it can't recover economically while you know Russia is ruling over its, uh, some of its most industrially and agriculturally productive regions and controlling access to its ports. So I think pushing the Russians back from at least some of their territorial gains is critical to enabling Ukraine to thrive economically and democratically. And if we were to start negotiations now uh, in this situation, Russia would seek to permanently annex every inch of territory that it's now holding, and maybe more. What a terrible irony, though. It keeps occurring to me how Putin has rhetorically said, we're one people about Ukrainians and Russians, and now he's going in there and, and murdering people, uh, children, women, and so forth. Back to 
American democracy, though. Laura from Texas uh, has a very direct question. She says, is democracy at risk? I think you've answered this, Larry. If Trump were to get elected again, could we be looking at a dictator here in the United States? Well, certainly Trump has been, I think, aspiring mainly to some kind of demagogic uh, or dictatorship role. But would that be actually what we would face, do you think? So I've only alluded to an answer so far. I haven't given you the answer. I gleaned an answer, I guess. I gleaned an um, answer or inferred an answer. Forgive me. Let me unpack it a little bit. I think we should think about our democracy as, first of all, the dimension of free and fair elections. And one of the real and frightening possibilities for 2024 is that Trump will return to the presidency as a result of succeeding in doing in 2024 what he failed to do in 2020, which is overturn the results of a free and fair election. I think there's a very good chance that the outcome of the 2024 presidential election will be very similar to 2020, probably with a different Democratic presidential candidate. The Democrat will win against probably Trump, maybe, you know, his anointed successor, but narrowly in a few battleground states. And if Republicans control the position of governor and secretary of state in battleground states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania and Arizona, you know, they could the next time around disqualify Democratic votes or just even after the Democratic candidate has won the state, declare Trump the winner and just give him the electoral votes. Well, excuse me, Larry, they're already trying. The Republican Party is making a concerted effort to try to get not only those offices held by members of the GOP, but also have people working the precincts and actually working in the voter. Well, that's what I'm referring to. So the Republican candidate for governor of Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano, has, who was there on the Capitol grounds on January 6th, has essentially pretty much indicated he would do that. And he'll appoint Pennsylvania's Secretary of State. There are election deniers running for governor and Secretary of State in Arizona. We'll see about Michigan. You know, Wisconsin is in play. Fortunately, the Georgia governor and Secretary of State who didn't go along with Trump's plot, won renomination in Georgia. But, you know, a lot of these states are up for grabs now. And that's only the beginning. If Trump returns to office, whether or not it's corruptly or by legitimately winning the election, he'll then be out for blood, out for vengeance. And any restraint he had in 2020 in terms of governing the Justice Department, the national security apparatus, the appointment of judges and whatever, it'll all be out the window. And he will demand total loyalty this time around from the extremists he appoints in the cabinet and from his minions in the Congress who will be, you know, intimidated to go along. Uh, And of course, the Republicans are probably going to win control of both houses of Congress this November. So then if Trump wins in 2024, it'll probably be by continued control of both houses of Congress. So it's a pretty frightening prospect. I think that if he comes back to power, it will not even be with the level of restraint he had 
during his first term, and he's already dangling publicly promises of you know presidential pardons against anyone who refuses to testify in this process of investigation and trial around the January 6th plot. It's all pretty grim when you see it in the context that uh, I'm still heartened by your optimism about democracy, but let me uh, uh, move away from Trump and perhaps uh, what to many is the dark possibility of his assuming the presidency again uh, or having a Republican control, which would mean that anybody's refusing a subpoena would not have to worry probably about any kind of consequences. But when you talk about ranked choice voting, for example, as one of the potential remedies, I'm also struck by the fact that we have as many, well, both on the left and right are quick to point out, we have uh, a system of uh, corruption, basically, I think, because of money within our democratic system. And I don't know how you root that out. Uh, I'm talking about money that is uh, not only big money and dark money, but untraceable money. And I'm talking also about the fact that um, it, it pretty much creates, for the most part, the way politics are run in our country because of lobbying uh, and because of the sort of influence that money has. There's no way of getting around that. And I wonder to what extent, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about doing something about this, just like there's been a lot of talk about making elections fair and free and making elections uh, not corrupt as well, not only Russian corruption, but corruption from within, from the enemy within, whomever that may be. We've got some gargantuan problems, you know, when we think about what we face as an enduring democracy that we cherish and making it continue to be alive and making it continue to serve the people and be transparent. Those are enormous which again gets me back to my admiration for your valiant efforts and also for your optimism, really, that you can be sanguine in the face of what I'm laying out here. And I don't mean to be mordant about it, but it's, it's the reality. Let me get back, though, for a moment to America's role in all this, uh, and we can come back to America within. You mentioned the Philippines. America was always almost a paradigmatic, still is, model of democracy. These kinds of concerns that I have and gerrymandering and other things certainly don't enhance that. But nevertheless, power is shifting. Capital power is shifting. And China's becoming, not necessarily overshadowing the United States, but certainly, in many people's eyes, as powerful, if not more powerful, economically. And you have the reality of the United States being the beacon of democracy, but not necessarily fulfilling the power that needs to sort of go with that beacon of democracy. Your thoughts about that? Well, I think that there are a lot of things wrapped up in the dilemma we are in now domestically and globally with respect to democracy. Let's lay our domestic politics aside for a moment. I hope we can come back to ranked choice voting and other reforms that I think can help to depolarize American democracy, because authoritarian populists thrive on polarization. They stimulate it, they need it in order to rule autocratically. And so our strategy, as it was in Turkey in the most recent elections challenging Erdogan's authoritarian rule, as it was in Greece when a center-leaning progressive candidate and Stanford alum, now Prime Minister Mitsokakis, beat back a left-wing 
populist government, the strategy for victory always has to be involve building a broad coalition and trying to cut against the prevailing trend of polarization. But globally, what I want to say is that there are multiple drivers of the deepening authoritarian recession that we're in now. And very clearly, one of them is what's happening to capital in the world and to capitalism. So I think it's worthwhile just pondering this for a second. One of the problems we have is that even though inequality between countries in the last several decades has been declining with the rise of emerging market nations and China and so on, inequality almost everywhere within countries has been increasing, getting worse. And not least, of course, in the United States, Europe a little bit less so because they have means for redistributing the before tax inequalities and leveling them a little bit in East Asia, Korea, and so on, Japan. But in a lot of other democracies, inequality is getting worse. And then you have globalization and the increases in the flow of goods, services, people, and so on. And as you get globalized supply chains, you get jobs leaving the United States and some other advanced industrial democracies and moving more toward emerging economies. And so you've got this perfect storm of social and economic anxiety where workers in the American heartland, but in other European heartlands, are losing their jobs, their incomes, their status at the same time that other countries are becoming more dynamic and at the same time as immigration is creating a symbolic and manipulated sense of threat. And it's just a very, very powerful cultural and political stew of anxiety, fear of being, quote, replaced, and so on and so forth. And if we don't develop strategies to create jobs and renew the economic and social dignity and opportunity of you know, middle-class people, working-class people who are losing their economic security and competitiveness, the soil, the raw material for a Trump-like figure to continue to mobilize these anxieties for illiberal and authoritarian purposes is going to you know, intensify. And I just want to say one more thing. Part of the problem with the globalization of capital that's been going on in the last several decades, my friend and colleague in Washington, D.C., Raymond Baker, who's been following the flows of illicit money around the world for several decades, has a new book coming out. You might want to interview him when it comes out called Invisible Trillions, about how capital is fleeing, taking flight from the, and not only individual capital, but corporate capital, to tax havens in the Caribbean and elsewhere in the world to not only launder dirty money from corrupt places like Russia, but also to send clean money abroad so that they don't have to pay taxes. And this is further distorting the nature of capitalism in a way that's undermining state capacity to address our challenges and intensifying inequality. 
So we need longer term, a deeper answer to the economic and social stresses we face than we have so far mobilized. Yeah, these are all very important and, and uh, singularly significant points. It also prompts me to add that we have seen an alliance among authoritarian and non-democratic nations where they not only politically help one another in a kind of symbiotic way, but they economically help one another. And right. that's, that's part of the problem we're facing too. But when you talk about domestic politics, you bring in the refugees who are seeking haven here in the United States. That's the biggest trump card for Trump of all, perhaps, that he can point to immigration and say, the Democrats don't have any solution to it. But of course, Republicans don't either, except people see them as being more hard-nosed and more difficult in terms of controlling the borders. That's a whole other topic. But you wanted to get back to domestic politics. And I want to just go there for a moment because you mentioned reforms. And I'd like to hear what you're proposing to make this a stronger democracy. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I want to say something about immigration very briefly. I don't think the American people will react in a way that feeds authoritarian populism if we have intentional strategies of bringing refugees from states that you know have been the victims of war and oppression that we have an intentional and regulated plan to bring here so bringing more afghans here to escape that tragedy which of course we helped had a role in not being able to stop and not managing well at the end and certainly bringing more ukrainians here i i don't think that's going to provoke no, i was thinking mainly of central americans uh, but that's where i'm coming we've got to get control of our borders and um you, you know you can't have an effective state if you don't have effective borders i favor a liberal immigration policy i favor more generous and intentional efforts to accept immigrants. We have a labor shortage in the United States. We need more immigrants. And I favor more intentional efforts to take people who are fleeing violence and oppression. But I think that it can't just be, well, anyone who wants to come across the border, come across. And so I believe Democrats need to join with Republicans in efforts to police our borders better and decide who we want to come in on and under what conditions. Democrats are facing an utterly politically losing proposition if their attitude is it doesn't matter. Anyone who wants to cross the border, however illegally, should be able to do so. With respect to the other reforms, Michael, I have a new article out in a journal called Democracy, a journal of ideas that presents my agenda for democratic reform in the United States. And it won't surprise you to know that ranked choice voting is at the top of my list, because I don't think we can stem the tide of political polarization in the United States unless we give people more choices. Right now, in, in the general election, you really only have a choice between a Republican and a Democrat, almost always in a partisan statewide office or national office or senatorial or congressional election. If you vote for a third party candidate or an independent, you're wasting your vote. But if you have ranked choice voting, as voters in San Francisco know, 
you don't ever waste your vote. You can rank your choices. And if your first candidate doesn't get a majority of first preference votes, your vote is transferred to your second choice in an instant runoff process until someone is elected who has a majority of the valid votes. This will stimulate competition. I think it will stimulate interest in elections. It will bring more voters into the electoral process. But we know from other instances, it also tends to put a thumb on the scale toward moderation and against extremism. And if you combine that with the other reform that I favor of the electoral process, which is blanket primaries, I think we could see very dramatic changes. The biggest problem we face now is having first-past-the-post general elections in combination with low turnout party primaries in which um, you know, very extreme candidates can be nominated by the most militant voters who turn out in low turnout party primaries. And it's often in, in many uh, states, 8, 10% of the electorate determining who's going to be the Republican nominee or the Democratic nominee. And if you've had the 8 to 10% of the most militant Demo- you know, voters who are on the more committed side of the Democrats and the same on the Republicans, and those are the only two alternatives, you know, it has a polarizing logic to it. I like the electoral system that the voters of Alaska adopted by voter initiative in 2020. They have, as we have had now for about a decade in California, a blanket primary. Republicans and Democrats contest together in one blanket primary. And you can indicate on the ballot whether you're a Democrat or a Republican and so on. But instead of, as in California, choosing the top two candidates to go to the general election, Alaska this August will choose the top four candidates to go to the election in November. And then they'll use ranked choice voting to choose among the top four candidates. And very likely, this is how the most moderate or one of the two most moderate Republicans in the Senate, Lisa Murkowski, will be reelected this November because she probably would have lost a Republican primary. In Nevada, voters are now circulating signatures for a top five system. There'd be a blanket primary and then the top five candidates would advance to the general election and voters would use ranked choice voting to choose among them. The reason why I like this system, Michael, is because parties can still choose their favorites. If the Republicans want to have a convention in advance of the blanket primary and Democrats want to have a convention and say, this is our candidate, this is the one they prefer, we prefer, they can do so. But other Republicans and Democrats can contest. And crucially, independents can contest. Green Party, Libertarian can contest. Let a thousand flowers bloom. And then let's use preferential voting to see who the voters really want, who is the best representation of the public will. Though I'm reminded of what happened with uh, ranked choice voting in Oakland. A lot of people thought the best candidate was Don Parada, and the elected mayor was Jean Kwan, and many felt yeah. she was elected because of the kind of 
Well, what, what the, the deficiencies, let's say, or the things that can go wrong with ranked choice voting. But but, the, but then in the next Oakland election, they elected a mayor who was, um, you know, much more broadly appealing. Yes, that's true. And more successful. And in San Francisco, people are unhappy about a lot of things going on in San Francisco. But the more moderate candidate who just happened to be an African-American woman won the San Francisco mayor's race. I think, yeah, you can always point to outcomes that don't work out so well. But I think the record of ranked choice voting has been pretty good in the cities that it's been used in in the U.S. People tend to like it. Let me bring this back home for a moment, because when you talk about minoritarian, I can't help thinking about a Supreme Court now that is fashioning laws about abortion, but also will be perhaps doing the same with respect to what is broadly defined as gun control maybe a more apt term, somebody described it as gun genocide. Uh, in other words, we've got essentially a Supreme Court that does not represent, at least according to the polls, the views of the majority of Americans. And you might say the same thing about the legislature as well. So is this really what we should expect or, for that matter, hope for a democracy, minoritarian rule? policy? Well, we have minoritarian rule now in the U.S., and it is not, I don't think it's what our founders envisioned, or at least not to this extreme. And there are very specific things we can do to reverse it, to facilitate the return to rule by the majority while still preserving checks on the power of the majority. We don't want runaway majoritarianism either because that could run away with our liberties if, you know, if the mood sweeps the country. You want courts to be able to act as a check on unconstitutional and undemocratic actions of the legislature or the legislature acting with the president or the president or a governor or whatever. You need a powerful independent judiciary but there are two problems with our Supreme Court today. One is that you had an action that was, I think, unconscionable and indefensible by a minoritarian leader, Mitch McConnell, who happened to have the majority position in, in the Senate at the time as Senate leader, to block a duly nominated Barack Obama nomination to the Supreme Court in 2016 and prevent him from even getting a hearing. Yeah, it was the Merrick Garland nomination, yeah. The Merrick Garland nomination. Uh, and we know the cynicism of uh, McConnell in doing that because he then went ahead four years later with having Trump nominate uh, someone to the uh, Supreme Court, you know, much closer, Amy Coney Barrett, much closer to a presidential election. So it was all just cynical power politics. And it's kind of the luck of the draw with the Supreme Court. You know, Democrats have now been in power almost as long as Republicans in the last 42 or so years. But the vast majority of Supreme Court nominees have been nominated by Republican presidents just because of the luck of the draw in terms of who retired or died when. And, you know, that's not right and it's not inevitable. And so I strongly support 
the legislation that's been proposed in part by our own uh, Silicon Valley congressman, uh, Ro Khanna, and that's been endorsed by The Economist magazine that would establish 18-year term limits for Supreme Court justices. And then every two years, according to this legislation, this is another reform I talk about in my democracy article, every two years, a president, Republican, Democrat, whoever, would have the right to appoint a new Supreme Court justice, because, you know, eventually, after 18 years, people would be stepping off the court and new replacements would need to be nominated. And there's another provision I like, which is the Senate can't bury this. If it doesn't act within 120 days, then the person automatic it has to vote it up or down the nomination or the nominated judge or justice is automatically confirmed. Temporarily, this would expand the size of the Supreme Court, but it's not court packing because every two years blindly into the future. So it could be a Republican who's adding a justice to the court or a Democrat who's adding a justice to the court. And eventually, when the current justices of the court retire, we would come back down to a steady state of nine justices. Larry, always a delight and always uh, an education talking to you. I wish we had more time. There's so much more that I want to cover. We just have to do it again. But uh, (laughs) I'm grateful for that you're out there and grateful for the work that you do, and I want to commend it, and I want to thank everybody who is part of this morning's podcast. Uh, we're, again, operating under the name, uh, and we will continue to, of Gray Matter. And thanks again to my friend and Stanford professor Larry Diamond. For all of us here, I'm Michael Krasny.